0: My name is Larry Johnson. I'm an adjunct professor of law at Columbia Law School here in New York City, but I was formerly a staff member of the United Nations Office of Legal Affairs, uh, beginning in 1971 in the codification division, and in 2008 retiring as Assistant Secretary General for Legal Affairs, Deputy Legal Counsel. And during my years in the Office of the Legal Counsel, I did deal with questions of admission, of uh, new members and uh, the status of non-member states or status of, of observers. And we're um, we're here today to discuss the question of procedures for admission and procedures for uh, how uh, uh, non-member states become observers and what that means and the consequences of being considered a non-member state. Uh, this is being uh, delivered in November of, of 2011 when the issue of the Palestinian application for membership is before the Security Council and has provoked a lot of interest and discussion over these matters. Uh, hence uh, the request that I that I uh, deliver this lecture. But first on membership. <clears throat> membership of the organization is fairly straightforward and there are texts that uh, one can uh, look at for guidance, uh, particularly lawyers will, of course, like to do that. And the fundamental text is Article Four of the Charter itself, which provides that membership in the UN is open to all other peace-loving states, and what, why is other there? That's to distinguish between the original founding members of the organization back in 1945, who were automatically, uh, once they ratified, members of the organization. But then in Article 4 it says, well, for those other than the original members, the organization is open to all peace-loving states which accept the obligations contained in the Charter and in the judgment of the organization are able and willing to carry out these obligations. So you have basically three criteria for membership. First, you have to be a state. Second, you have to be, uh, well, first you have to be a peace-loving state. So A, a state, and B, peace-loving state. And the second major criteria is you have to accept the obligations contained in the charter. And three, the organization has to determine and judge that the applicant is able and willing to carry out these obligations. So that's fairly straightforward, even though, of course, the judgments on those questions can be uh, very uh, difficult, contentious, political, and so on. Certainly in the first 10 years of the organization, there was a lot of uh, dispute within the Security Council as to uh, what were the criteria for, whether certain applicants met the criteria for membership, uh, there were vetoes cast on various applicants and the whole issue of admission became part of the Cold War scenario. That was broken in 1955 with uh, a, um, a package deal where basically those on one side of the Cold War had their uh, uh, allies admitted at the same time those on the other side of the Cold War had their um, uh, allies admitted. Uh, One of the issues that came up in this time, in 1948, in fact, was a question whether or not a member state, when it was voting on whether or not to admit an applicant, whether or not they could uh, base its consent on other factors than what is in Article 4. Um, For example, uh, at some point during this Cold War period, uh, member states were voting no, because they said their vote was contingent on whether or not their allies were going to be admitted as member states so the question was sent to the advisory, to the international court of justice whether a member state could make its consent dependent on conditions other than what's set out in article 4 and the court said no that is member states when they take a decision on admission whether it's in the security council or the general assembly must base it on the criteria in Article Four. Now the other textual provisions that are applicable are the rules of procedure of the two organizations concerned. Um, Because the admission of a member state after it's determined that it meets these criteria is is done in two stages. First, the Security Council must recommend the admission of the applicant state. Then it goes to the General Assembly of the UN. So what's important there, and I'll read the language from the Charter, again, Article 4, the admission of any state to membership shall be affected by a decision of the General Assembly upon the recommendation of the Security Council. So what that means is the Security Council and a number of provisions of the Charter have similar provisions, that the that the initial decision must be made by the Security Council. You must have a positive recommendation out of the Security Council, which then goes to the General Assembly, and it's up to the General Assembly to say yes or no to that recommendation. The Assembly cannot, on its own, admit any applicant as a member. The Assembly cannot overrule a Security Council recommendation. There must be a positive recommendation out of the Security Council. The Council is the engine and is in the, is in the driver's seat, as it were. So when you come to the Rules of Procedure, first of the Security Council in uh, Chapter 10, and these are Rules 58 to Rule 60 of the Provisional Rules of Procedure of the Security Council, uh, the process is spelled out. And what happens is when an applicant, uh, when an application is received by the uh, Secretary General, he will uh, send it to the Security Council And the rules provide that the council may, um, and normally they do this, shall refer this to a committee of the Security Council. It's a committee of the whole, as is most or all of the committees of the Security Council, all 15 members. And it's a committee on new members, and they will review the application and decide whether or not to recommend admission or not. Uh, the rule provides that if they do recommend uh, admission, then it goes to the gen- then it goes to the Security Council, parent organ, and normally with a resolution that's been uh, put into the committee report, uh, the Security Council will normally adopt that recommended resolution by which the Security Council recommends admission and forwards it on to the GA for for action. But it does say if the Security Council does not recommend the applicant. Then the Security Council, the committee, um, the Security Council itself, after it receives that information from the committee that says they're they're deadlocked or we have no recommendation to to to, to make, uh, they have to, the council has to make a special report to the General Assembly to indicate that they have reviewed the application, but there is no recommendation for admission. Then it goes to the General Assembly. So, as I said, it's clear that it goes to the GA no matter what. If there's a recommendation for admission, that's smooth sailing. It goes to the General Assembly for, for action. And over the years, once the Security Council has recommended uh, admission, uh, the General Assembly has always followed suit, as far as I'm aware. But if the Security Council does not recommend, and either postpones or there is a veto or they are unable to uh, uh, get the required majority, that is nine votes in the Security Council, still there's a report that goes to the General Assembly. Once it's in the GA, you move into the GA rules of procedure and that's under Chapter 14, Admission of New Members, Rules uh, 134 to 138. And it's interesting in there because the rule itself provides that if the Council does not recommend uh, membership or they postpone the consideration of the application, the Council, the GA may, after full consideration of this special report I've just referred to, they could send the application back to the Council, together with a full record of the discussion in the Assembly for further consideration and recommendation or report. So the rules foresee uh, back and forth between the council and the GA, and in the early years that did in fact happen, that the council would report that they were unable to, to make a recommendation, perhaps because of a veto, perhaps because they're postponing, or perhaps because of a lack of a majority, and they would report that to the General Assembly, and sometimes the General Assembly would say, well, please reconsider. Um, uh, <clears throat> so you can see in the early years that it was quite a contentious issue. For the last, say, 30 years, it has not been very contentious. But as I said, in, in, in November of 2011, the, the Palestinian application is contentious. So uh, we will uh, see how the Security Council handles the matter, and then we will see how the General Assembly handles the matter under their, under their rules. But the bottom line is it's basically pretty clear uh, what the options are from a legal point of view and a procedural point of view. We will now move on to the question of non-member states and observer status within the General Assembly. Uh, before we do that, though, we should address an issue that is more for an international law lecture and perhaps another, 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 uh, another topic uh, than this particular one, which is recognition of states under international law. The important thing here is to note that the charter does not provide any mandate to the General Assembly or the UN in general to recognize sovereign independent states. That is a matter left to individual governments to determine on their own. However it does come up sometimes within the organization and that is what we will discuss uh, today. Uh, Again as an introductory matter I I should indicate that within the organization while, while it has no mandate to recognize states or governments as such. By implication, sometimes it is required, the organization is required to deal with governments, the recognition of governments. Not as an academic or as a declaratory uh, matter, but rather as a practical matter when you have problems and, and, and disputes and conflicts as to which group represents a member state. So this is not the recognition of a state, or it's not the admission of a member state, but rather which group represents that state. And we've had many examples of that, but one of the earliest and and, and most well-known is China, where it's a founding member of the organization from 1945. In 1949, there was a revolution. And from 49 to 71, China, the member state China, was represented in the organization by what was called the Republic of China, based on Taiwan. In 1971, the General Assembly determined that the representatives of Chiang Kai-shek would be expelled from the organization and that the lawful rights of the People's Republic of China would be restored. So that from 1971 on, uh, of course, China is represented by the government of the People's Republic of China. So that was not a question of admission. And that was not really a question of the organization uh, recognizing governments or recognizing states as such. But the implication was is when you have rival regimes, sometimes the organization will, um, uh, will leave a seat vacant. That happened a few times. Uh, this, this, this lecture is not on that subject. We can come back to it at another time. But that's just a distinguished representation of a government, of a state, by a group, from the question of admission of an applicant as a member. So let's move on to uh, observer status. Uh, From the very beginning, well, uh, what does it mean? How does it arise in the UN? Uh, It arose in the UN very early on uh, when non-member states asked the Secretary General to, to give them facilities for observing the work of the General Assembly. The Swiss in the late 40s, for example. And they came to the SG and said, well, we'd like to watch what's going on in the General Assembly. We're not a member, but can you put a nameplate up and we'll set up an office and just provide facilities? And that was done. So that came up early on, the question of non-member states observing the work and sessions of the General Assembly. Note that it's an observer to the General Assembly, not to the UN as an institution. Of course, initially uh, it comes, and we've mentioned it in in, in what we've just covered, in in the application for membership, because in the the Security Council, you can have uh, individuals, individual governments, members of the council, objecting to an application by saying, this is not a state, and it's not a peace-loving state, or it's not a state at all. So it does arise in the Security Council, it can arise in the Security Council if there's a question whether or not the applicant is indeed a state. Um, Besides the issue of observer status in the General Assembly, it can come up for the Secretary General in a number of different ways. Uh, The most uh, important or long-term legal uh, implications, uh, consequence, is in the treaty field where treaties that the Secretary General is depositary for, that is, he's the custodian of treaties, various treaties, and he keeps the list of which treaties, which states are parties, and which ones have ratified, exceeded, signed, and so on. A good number of these treaties are open uh, to all states. Most of your multilateral treaties these days, not at the beginning of the organization, but these days, are open to all states to encourage universality of participation. So the Secretary General ran into the problem. Uh, He's supposed to manage the treaty. It's open to all states, and he is the one that's supposed to receive treaty actions. So how is he to know if he gets a treaty action from a given entity, whether or not that entity is a state or not? Uh, Just as the General Assembly has no authority or mandate to recognize states, the Secretary General certainly has no mandate or authority to decide what is a state and what is not a state. So in the 60s and 70s, a, a, a procedure was devised to solve that problem, and that was called the Vienna Formula. And what it meant was that when the Secretary General received a piece of paper from an applicant that wanted to ratify or wanted to accede to a treaty, his test was whether or not that entity was a member of the UN, was a member of a specialized agency, or was a party to the statute of the ICJ. That was the test. And then that made it easier, easy for this, and and clear and objective for the Secretary General, uh, who he would consider a state in terms of accepting treaty action. This he reported to the General Assembly, and I believe it was in the early 70s, the General Assembly gave its uh, benediction, more or less, uh, uh, acquiescence or approval of the Secretary General's practice. So that takes care of his, uh, the, the issue that would face the SG as to what is a state. The other way it comes up, in a similar fashion, uh, although it's not uh, so much a a long-term legal consequence as it is with treaties, is invitations to UN conferences. In the last 20 or 30 years, uh, conferences convened by the General Assembly, again for universality purposes, are open to all states. And the Secretary General is mandated, please invite all states to this conference. He will then use the Vienna formula, as I said before, uh, to issue the invitations. So, for example, uh, as of today, um, the only, there are several non-member states. The only non-member state that has a mission in New York is the Holy See. But there are other non-member states, such as Nui and Cook Islands, because they are members of specialized agencies. Therefore, they are admitted to, or they are uh, invited to, UN conferences, and sit among all other states and vote. If you recall, the Holy See was uh, was a very active, uh, full participant in the uh, Population and Women conferences, and that's because of the Vienna Formula, and because the Holy See is a member of various specialized agencies, and therefore is a state. The other way, uh, another example of where uh, the issue of whether or not you are a state or not comes up in the in the UN is if you become a par- you want to become a party to the Statute of the ICJ, and therefore uh, would be able to uh, initiate action in the International Court of Justice. Uh, as you may know, members of the UN are automatically parties to the Statute, but the uh, but the statute of the court and the rules of the, of the court uh, provide for ways that non-member states can also become parties to the statute. And basically that is uh, uh, through a recommendation of the Security Council, which is then adopted by the General Assembly, giving conditions by which a given state can become a, a party to the statute. And then the General Assembly just takes the final decision. For many years, Switzerland, for example, and Nauru also, were parties to the statute of the ICJ before there were members of the organization. The other way, and it was a more political uh, way, that the uh, issue of statehood uh, could come before the UN was in the decolonization process. Um, Over the years when uh, certainly trust territories, UN trust territories, became independent or or formerly dependent areas became independent sovereign countries, the UN might have been involved, certainly in the trusteeship area, in plebiscites and in elections and in uh, self-determination exercises. And therefore the General Assembly would sometimes recognize that uh, a fair and free election or plebiscite had been given in, uh, in, in, in territory X and therefore welcomed the results of that plebiscite and would say, welcomes that on 1st of January the following year, a given territory would become an independent state. So there you have within the decolonization process, in fact, the General Assembly recognizing that a given entity had become a state or would become a, a state very soon. Now. These are the ways in which this issue comes up within the UN. Are there any rules or are there any charter provisions on this issue? Either when is an entity a state or when a state is to become an observer, non-member state, in the GA? And the answer is no. There are no rules and there is only practice. So it's quite the contrary uh, to the question of admission. There's nothing out there that regulates uh, this issue as such other than practice. And I've gone through uh, the, uh, the practice of the of the Secretary General with regard to treaties, the Vienna formula, and basically that informs the Secretary General as well if an entity asks to be an observer in the General Assembly. I think there were maybe 15 or 16 countries over the years that were had not yet become members of the G of the UN, but asked to be observers in the General Assembly. And the Secretary General would put up the nameplate on the side in the back, where observers were simply because they met the Vienna Formula. They were members of a specialized agency, and that was welcomed by uh, in the in the Cold War period. It was welcomed by all concerned because it took care of the two Germanys the two Koreas, and the two Vietnams because all of those countries had become members of specialized technical agencies and were able to uh, participate then in in, in the international community even though they were not yet members of of the organization. But bear in mind one thing. At that time, the observer states did not participate in terms of making interventions and speeches. So the Secretary General's role was simply to put up the nameplate, give them passes, uh, give them facilities so that they could receive public documents, and basically they sat and they observed. If they ever wanted to speak, they would need the permission of the body concerned. And in the early years, uh, uh, observer states were encouraged to make statements in the main committees of the General Assembly, not in the plenary. So they tried to narrow the, uh, the rights, basically, of the member st- of the observer states to more technical matters and matters of specific interest to those observer states and uh, not participate in the general debate, in the plenary of the General Assembly, and so on. Then another, another practice developed in the GA, and that was inviting organizations to become observers in the General Assembly and this came up with regard to national liberation movements and it came up with regard to intergovernmental bodies ranging in the early years from the Organization of American States to the African Union and now you may have 20 some different or maybe 30 by now international organizations that have observer status in the General Assembly and that's done by a General Assembly resolution but please note that up until recently the observer states were never subject to General Assembly resolution. They were only subject to the Secretary General putting up the nameplate. So over the years, you developed the anomaly, as some would say, that international organizations, particularly national liberation movements, the PLO, SWAPO, and the two South African national, then then, uh, national liberation movements, had greater rights of participation than observer states. So you had the PLO, SWAPO, ANC, and PAC being able to participate because they had a General Assembly resolution, a mandate, uh, in debates, uh, whereas the Swiss and other non-member states needed a special invitation in order to do that. Uh, this was resolved for uh, in, in a number of ways, the most practical way, is most of the non-member states became member states. So the Swiss uh, became a member state, and that issue disappeared. For the Holy See, it did not. They had been a member since 1960, an observer, sorry, an observer uh, state since 1964. Thirty years later, in 1994, they got a resolution just as these organizations had received. Therefore, from 94 on, they were participating as an observer in the General Assembly pursuant to a G.A. resolution, which spelled out all of their rights of participation. So basically at that point in 94, the Holy See uh, achieved more or less the same rights uh, that Palestine had received up until that point. And that's an important matter to, to bear in mind that just because you become an observer state in the General Assembly does not mean you have extensive procedural rights in the General Assembly. That requires a General Assembly resolution. So at the end of the day, even though the, the General Assembly in the UN does not recognize states, and even though there are no procedures uh, spelled out how you become an observer state, there are consequences within the organization. Uh, if somehow the General Assembly or uh, by practice uh, the Secretary General uh, considers you to be a state. Uh, let me recap. First of all and most importantly in the treaty area, if you meet the Vienna Formula, uh, a non-member uh, entity, if you are a member of a specialized agency, a party to the statute of the, of the court, or if in fact a few times the General Assembly has invited a particular non-member state to a conference, and that means the General Assembly has considered the entity to be a state. So if you have some indication that uh, the entity has been accepted as a state by another international organization in the UN system or by the General Assembly, then the Secretary General will consider you to be a state for treaty purposes and for invitation to conferences. So as we're speaking in in, in this month of November in the year 2011, Palestine has... uh, has become a full member of UNESCO uh, the month before and now we will see how the Vienna formula and if the Vienna formula will be followed in the months to come and whether or not Palestine will submit treaty actions to various treaties, there's been speculation about that, and whether or not Palestine will be admitted to UN all states conferences in the future and all of that is irrespective of what happens to their application for admission to membership.